we go first of all to the book of John, so if you'd like to begin to move in that direction. The Gospel of, God, of John, of course, is about the ministry of Jesus Christ, as all the other Gospels also are. However, John's Gospel is quite different from the other three. For example, about one-third of John's Gospel is about the events that took place around the Passover and the resurrection of Christ. Those events, of course, cover a very, very short period of time of the entire three-and-a-half-year ministry of Jesus Christ. But John does not begin his gospel with those events, nor does John begin his gospel with Christ's ministry, nor did he begin with Jesus' genealogy, showing, of course, that he is the son of David and so forth. Instead, John began his gospel with a very important statement about the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. It's as if John is saying, before he could say anything about Christ, his life or his ministry, he has to establish the nature of the one who is our Savior and how and why he could be our Savior. So John's opening statement begins with the answer to this question. Who is Jesus? Who is Christ? And John answers or addresses this important issue in his opening statement. Here's what he wrote about Christ. John chapter 1, verse 1, if you're there. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But before we go any further, who or what is the Word? Well, John answers that question for us as well in verse 14. He says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So obviously John is speaking about Christ. So when John speaks about the Word, he is referring to Jesus Christ. So now let's go back to verse 1. The first phrase, in the beginning was the Word, this means before anything began, before anything existed, the Word was already there. The Word already existed. Obviously, this is another way of expressing eternity. Now, this leads to another scripture I'd like to read in the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 90 and verse 2. If you'll turn there, please. Psalm chapter 90 and verse 2. The psalmist writes, before the mountains were brought forth, there was before creation, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now this is a very impressive statement. We cannot say that about any human being. We cannot even say that about angels. We can say that only about God. Now, of course, there are many things we can say about God. God is love. God is merciful. God is forgiving. God is powerful, and so on and so on. So many things we can say about, about God. Of course, these are the inherent characteristics that describe God. 
But when we speak about a being that is eternal, that has always existed, we're speaking only about God. God alone is eternal. God alone was not created. God alone has always existed. This is an inherent characteristic about God. But John reveals something very important in this first phrase, in the beginning was the Word. He says the word, that the Word, Jesus Christ in other words, was there from the beginning. Therefore the Word, Jesus Christ, is eternal. He has always existed. And therefore, as we have just read in Psalm 90 verse 2, the Word Jesus Christ has to be, and you fill in the blank, a being who has always existed from the beginning, eternally, has to be God. That's just what we saw in Psalm chapter 90, verse 2. This is a fact that is established in the very first phrase that John wrote. If we had nothing else in this verse, this would be sufficient to demonstrate to us that the word Christ is God. Let's now go to the second phrase. The word was with God. With means there is a relationship between the word and God. With it indicates a separation between the two. Here are two distinct beings. One is with the other. The Word and God, are, the Father, are not one and the same being. One is with the other. The Word was in God's presence, but distinct from God. And at the same time, of course, in fellowship with God. The Word was with Him. We now come to the third phrase. The Word was God. And that means exactly that. That's what it means. Not only was the Word with God from the very beginning, the Word also was God. God the Father is God, but the Word also is God. Now let me just say briefly, this does not mean polytheism. Polytheism means a belief in many gods. There's only one God. But at this present time, there are two beings in that one God. God the Father and God the Word. There are two beings, but only one God. That is what John 1.1 is telling us. John is not speaking about one being. He is speaking about two distinct beings. As I have said, that first phrase is sufficient to establish that the Word, Jesus Christ, is eternal, that He is God. But then as he went on to the third phrase, John just says, let's be clear, the Word was God. So there's no doubt the Word was God. Two beings are being described, and both are God. So from this scripture we conclude that the Word, who is Jesus Christ, is eternal. 
He was not created. He existed before his human birth. He has always existed. He is God. So this scripture, John 1.1, has answered our question, who is Jesus? So is that the end of the sermon? We could go home? Well, perhaps it should be the end of the sermon, but, but there are some who teach that Jesus Christ is not eternal, that he has not always existed, that in fact he was created, did not exist before his human birth. They believe that the word God can only refer to the Father and never to Jesus Christ. That is their belief, that is their concept. Those who deny the pre-existence of Christ do so because they think they are preserving the oneness of God. It seems they are unable to understand how God can be one and yet there is more than one being in the Godhead, and that both of them are God. They don't seem to be able to understand that. The issue about the nature of Christ, of course, has been a controversy from the time of the apostles in the first century down to our time. This issue is a very important one because it relates to the very nature of God and Jesus Christ. It's also fundamental to the plan and purpose that God has for all humanity. Now we have just read John 1, 1, and it seems to be clear the way John wrote it, but there are those who will not accept John 1, 1 as John wrote it. Through them it has to mean something else. And the question is why? Those who don't accept John 1, 1 as John wrote it, start with the premise, the assumption, the opinion that there's only one being who is God. Their premise is that there cannot be two beings, both of which are God. Therefore, because of this premise, they conclude that Christ had to have been created he could not have eternally existed. He only came into being when conceived in the womb of Mary, his mother. Also, they conclude, Christ cannot be God. Only God the Father is God. And this premise interprets for them John 1.1. 1, 1. But what if the premise is wrong? If the premise is wrong, their interpretation also is going to be wrong. So what is the, uh, the, uh, the basis for their premise? Is there any kind of scriptural support for it? Is there any kind of biblical support? If there is not, then this is just their human opinion and therefore of no value whatsoever. We're going to discuss their supposed scriptural basis later we will see that the supposed scriptural basis for this premise is based on a misunderstanding of a scripture. But we'll come to that later. The fact is that the premise that is held by those who have this premise is a false premise, and therefore the interpretation is equally false. The false interpretation 
based on a false premise, requires that John 1, 1 cannot be understood literally as John wrote it. The false premise demands that John 1, 1 has to mean something different from the way that John wrote it. Their conclusion, the word, the term word in John 1, 1 is not to be understood as a literal being. The word is to be understood as metaphorical and not literal. One person wrote, and I quote, Jesus of Nazareth is what the word, in parentheses, God's wisdom of John 1, 1 became. He is the unique expression as a human being of the wisdom of God. It was the wisdom of God which existed from the beginning. And that wisdom became a person at the conception of Jesus, unquote. Therefore, based upon this premise, they conclude, John was not referring to an actual being when he used the term word. When John used the term word, he meant a thought, a wisdom, an idea, or some impersonal expression of God the Father. That thought, that wisdom, whatever, that impersonal expression is what became, was changed into Christ as a human being at his conception. Word, therefore, is not literal. It's not a being. It's metaphorical. I'm mentioning this so that you'll understand the concept behind this premise. If that is the case, what a strange conclusion. If that's the case, this wording, at best, in the second phrase, is awkward and unnatural. We would not usually say, would we, wisdom was with God? We would not say a thought was with God. We don't speak that way. We would say God is wise, or we say God thinks, but we would not take wisdom or thought or idea or any other aspect of God's nature and say that was with him. We don't speak that way, nor does the Bible. The Bible does not say love is with God. The Bible says God is love. 1 John 4, 8. The Bible does not say faithfulness is with God. The Bible says God is faithful. 1 Corinthians 1, 9. The Bible does not say light is with God. The Bible says God is light. 1 John 1, 1 5. Well, I could give so many examples, and they're all the same way, but I think you get the point. With means separation. The characteristics of God, those aspects of his nature, are not separate from God. When we describe the nature of God or the characteristics of God, we don't use the word with as though, as though those, are, those characteristics are, are somehow distinct or different from God. Uh, God's wisdom is over here, but God is here. Or, or, or God's love is over here, but God is here. We, we don't understand it that way. That's very awkward and very unusual. With means a relationship 
of one person or a thing with another person or a thing. God's love, God's mercy, God's patience, so forth and so on, is not with him. They're not separate from him. They're part of him. They are his very nature. But let's look at the third phrase, the word was God. This one is very difficult for them, those that have that premise that I've described. Those who want to see that the word, the word word is inanimate and not a separate being, see this phrase differently from the way John wrote it. For them, this phrase cannot be taken literally as a being, it's a metaphor. Therefore, they say the word God means a quality or a characteristic of God and does not refer to a separate being or entity. Their interpretation then, based on this false premise, as we will see, means that the word, as I quoted from this other individual, wisdom, thought, idea, whatever, was divine or godlike or godly but not a being, not an entity. So by substituting, interpreting, divide for God, they conclude that the word, God's wisdom or thought or whatever, was changed to Christ, became Jesus. And it was not really God, but only godly or godlike. It was divine, godlike or godly in character, but not a being according to their premise. Well, the problem with this interpretation is John did not write divine or godlike or godly. He didn't write it that way. He could have and would have if that's what he meant, but he didn't mean that, and he didn't write it that way. He used the word God, which refers to a being and not some impersonal thought or concept. What they are really saying, I suppose, is that John did not accurately or correctly write this verse. They think John meant to say, or should have said, quote, in the beginning, wisdom existed. God had wisdom, and that wisdom was divine. <laughs> of course, John didn't write that, and he did not mean that. So this leads to a few questions and observations. First of all, the word God, the word God in Greek, I don't usually give Greek and Hebrew words, but I will in this case. The Greek word is theos, T-H-E-O-S, theos. The word God is the same word in both phrases, the second and third phrases. Therefore, it must have the same meaning. Theos is a noun, it is not an adjective. It cannot be God, which is a noun in one place, but divine or godlike, which is an adjective in another place. You cannot do that. It's a noun in both places. It is not an adjective in either place. We can't change what John wrote and interpret it as though it, it was written in a different way, which it was not. Secondly, is John saying that God's thought or wisdom or whatever was with him from the beginning from eternity? Well, that would be a strange statement to make 
Of course, all aspects of God's nature were with him from, from eternity. Obviously, they were. So why would it have to be said? Why choose also just God's wisdom or thought and change that into Christ? Why just that one aspect of God's nature? As I quoted earlier, why just wisdom was changed? Why not change God's love? or his mercy, or his patience, or his forgiveness, or his compassion, or his power. Why wisdom? Why thought? Why change that one? Why that focus? Or for that matter, if we're talking about changing something about God, his nature, into the one who became a human being, Jesus Christ, why not change everything that is God's nature into the one who became Christ? Why just one thing? Why not everything? Well, of course, this whole concept is very far-fetched. It really makes no sense at all. And obviously, that's not what John wrote. Third point. If God's thought, if God's wisdom was changed to Christ, that, that somehow this wisdom that God had now is Christ. It was changed into Christ, somehow removed from God, and now changed into Christ. If that happens, and then uh, does that make any sense? Because if the word, that wisdom, is now Jesus Christ, does that mean that God no longer had wisdom? After all, it was changed to Christ. Christ is now the earth. Whatever he is now used to be God's wisdom. But now God's wisdom is Christ. Does that mean that God no longer has wisdom? Because his wisdom is now on the earth in the form of Jesus Christ. That certainly would not make sense. That certainly would be a strange conclusion. But really, what is the point of John 1.1? Is it to establish the past eternity of God and his characteristics? No, of course, everyone already understood that. They accepted that. That was already accepted. John is writing about Jesus Christ. He is the subject. He is the topic of his gospel. And what he is doing is to establish right from the beginning, the opening words, the eternal existence of the Word, and that that Word is Jesus Christ. That is important. And John wanted to establish that right from the very beginning, the opening statement of his book. If we continue in verses 2 and 3, we find, so, uh, we find something along this line. He, that is to say the Word, notice it does not say it, it says He, referring to the Word, or Jesus Christ, was in the beginning with God, he says once again. Then notice this, all things were made through Him. Without him, nothing was made that was made was made. So is John saying that a metaphorical word, a personified wisdom, was able to create all things? Uh, that doesn't make sense. Everything was created by the word. How could the word create anything if it was not a being that had the power and ability to create and to make? A metaphorical word, such as wisdom, did not, does not, cannot create anything. 
And a word, a thought, a wisdom cannot become the product. For example, a carpenter may have an idea, a concept, a thought, thoughts in his mind about something he wishes to make. Perhaps he could visualize it, he could see it in his mind. It's something real in his mind, but it's only in his mind. But those thoughts do not do the work, they do not create the product. And those thoughts certainly do not become, they are changed into the product. All carpenters wish it could be done that way, but it doesn't happen that way. The thought is there, but it takes a being to do the work and to do the creation. So not only was Christ, that is to say the word, not created, he is the creator. Notice verse 10. He, referring to Christ, was in the world, and the world was made through him. So how could Christ have done it if he had not existed before in order to do it? So Christ has pre-existed everything. Everything was made by him. He did not come into existence at his human birth. But you might ask the question, why is the term word used to refer to Christ? There probably are several reasons. But first of all, what is a word? A word is a means by which we communicate our will, our thoughts to others. We use words to convey or express our thoughts and our ideas. It is our means of communication with others. And in that sense, Christ is the spokesman. He is the medium through which God communicates His will, His purpose, His instruction to man. Notice that in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Hebrews 1, 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke, using words, of course, in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken, using words, to us by His Son. God does not speak directly to us. He has not done that. But He does communicate His will, His plan, His purpose to us through His Son. His Son is the spokesman. He is the Word, as it were. Notice this also whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. So who made the worlds? Well, God did, but he did it through Christ. So who is the creator, by the way? God or Christ? Both. God is the creator, but so is Christ. Because God did his creation through Jesus Christ. So we can refer to God as creator, and to Christ as creator as well. Now notice it does not say here that God did this through wisdom. He did it through His Son. His Son is Jesus Christ. His Son is not wisdom. Wisdom did not create. Wisdom did not make. God did it through His Son. That's what Hebrews 1.1 is telling us, verses 1 through 2. 
Also notice John chapter 12, verse 49. Christ himself speaking says, I have not spoken on my own authority. Again, we're using words. But it's not on his own authority. As he goes on to say, the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. Christ is the spokesman. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. So by this terminology, by using the term word, John is establishing that Christ existed before his human birth, that he was not created, that he is eternal, that he was with God the Father, and that he also is God. And John also establishes by this terminology that God the Father communicates his will through his Son, Jesus Christ. They work together in total unity, harmony, complete harmony, God communicating his will through his Son, Jesus Christ. Let's go back to the premise that I mentioned at the very beginning, that Christ has not eternally existed, that he is not God. I I have two questions I would like to ask today and obviously answer. One, are there scriptures that state clearly that Christ existed before his human birth? If so, then the premise that Christ did not exist before his human birth is false. I'm going to be reading a number of scriptures. I'll do them very quickly and I'll make a very, very few comments about them because I think the scriptures pretty well speak for themselves. We'll start again with John chapter 1. That's where we are already. Verse 30. John the Baptist is speaking and referring to Christ. He says this, pointing to him, this is he, Christ of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. Well, you know, John the Baptist was born before Christ was born. John was born about six months before Christ was born. So how could Christ, who was born after John, be before John? Well, obviously, he was not referring to his human birth, but to his preexistence. In that way, Christ was before John. Not in his human birth, but in his preexistence. John 3, verse 13, just over a few pages. John 3, 13. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who came down from heaven. Who came down from heaven? The Son of Man who is in heaven. So who is the he that came down from heaven? And he answers the question. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ. He was on the earth, and he is now in heaven. He is the same one. We're not talking about two different beings. The one who came down from heaven is the same one who has ascended to heaven. It is one and the same being. Now, now where is wisdom in all of this? Or or God's thought? Or or godly wisdom? Of course, it's not there. That was an interpretation that is false, that does not belong there. John 6, verse 62. John 6, 62. What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? Christ was there before, is what it is saying. 
That's not a man. It's, talking, it's not talking about wisdom. I'm not talking about thoughts. The Son of Man ascending where He, the Son of Man, was before. Was the human being, Christ, in heaven before? Well, it says He was. He's been there for all eternity, of course. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. 1 Corinthians 10, 4. All drank of the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed. That rock was Christ. We're talking about the time of the Exodus, about 1,400 years or so before Paul wrote this. And it says Christ was that rock. Not wisdom was that rock, or something else was that rock. Christ was that rock. Notice it uses past tense, was. It doesn't say Christ is that rock, as though he's referring to him now, or will be in the future that rock. He was that rock. He obviously pre-existed. John 8, verse 56. John 8, verse 56. Christ said that your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old. And how could you say you've seen Abraham, uh, who lived 2,000 years before the Jews and Jesus at this time? So how could that be? Then notice what Jesus also said. Most assuredly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. You'll notice that's in capitals in most of your Bibles, I am. So they took up rocks, stones to throw at him. They consider this to be blasphemy. So first of all, when Jesus said that he existed before Abraham, the Jews meant, meant that to, understood that to mean exactly what he said. That he was alive 2,000 years ago. And he was older, in fact, even than Abraham was. The only way that's possible is for Christ to have pre-existed his human birth. Notice also he said, I am. Now, many do not understand what that term means. But the Jews at that day knew what it meant. They didn't like it. And they didn't agree with it. But they fully understood. They knew exactly what it meant. This is a reference back to Exodus chapter 3. When Moses asked God, what was his name? And God said, I am who I am. Furthermore, God told Moses to say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am is one of the names of God. It is God. So when Christ said, I am, he is saying, I am God. The Jews didn't agree with it. They didn't like it. But they understood it. And they considered it to be blasphemy and wanted to kill him because he was saying that he was God. John 17, verse 5. John 17, verse 5. In the final prayer of Christ, and we'll be coming to this again later as well, Christ prays to the Father and says, Oh, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. How could that be? 
Jesus Christ, had glory with the Father before the universe was created, is what he is saying. And he's asking to be restored to a glory that he had, a former glory that he had before the world began. He is not talking about wisdom or a thought or an idea or some other part of God's nature. He's talking about himself. He did not say, glorify me with the glory which your wisdom had before the world was. Glorify me with the glory which I had himself. And Colossians 1.15. Colossians 1.15. He, referring to Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created. God is creator, but so is Christ. By him, by Christ, all things were created. How could Christ have done that if he wasn't there? He had to have pre-existed. He had to have been there to do this creation. It also says, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things consist. I don't see how it could be any clearly, more clearly expressed or explained than Paul did here in Colossians. Christ, not wisdom or some other aspect of God's nature, Christ created all things. He was there before all things. He preexisted his human birth. And Hebrews 1 verse 10, Hebrews 1 verse 10 says this, referring to Christ, you, Lord, this is referring to Christ. In the beginning, Christ was in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth. Christ did that, not wisdom. And it's not even saying that God the Father did it. This is talking about Christ. So the subject is Christ, not wisdom and not even God. Though as I've said, God did it through Christ. We understand that. But specifically it is saying that Christ laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Does wisdom have hands? Uh, do thoughts have hands? Uh, who does the work? Beings do the work. Christ did it. That was his work with his hands. The second question, going back to the premise I had before. Are there scriptures that clearly state that Christ is God? Is so the premise that Christ is not eternal, that he was created, that he is not God, is a false premise. We'll begin with Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgins shall be with child and bear a son, and will call his name Emmanuel which is translated God with us. Not godly wisdom or the wisdom of God, God, a noun, a being. The being God is with us. That is, that his name even tells us that Christ is God. Mark chapter two, I won't read the full context, but in Mark chapter two, it talks about a paralytic that was brought to Christ for healing. In verse 5 of Mark chapter 2, it says, Son, your sins are forgiven you. 
And of course, the Jews, the scribes that were there were very offended by that statement because they asked the question in verse 7, who can forgive sins but God alone? And that's true. Only God can forgive sins. But Christ said in verse 10, that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He is calling himself God. He has power to forgive. Only God can do that. So therefore, he must be God. And he said, in fact, he had the power to do it. John chapter 5, verse 17. John 5, 17. Christ said, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Because he not only broke the Sabbath, according to them, of course, but also said that God his father, was his father, making himself equal with God. The Jews sought to kill Christ because when Christ said, God is my father, I am his son, they understood what that meant. If you're a son of God, you're God. If God is your father, you're God. They understood that. They didn't like it. They didn't agree with it. They thought that was blasphemy. They wanted to kill him. But they understood it, and they understood it correctly. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of whom? Of Christ, of course. Christ is going to come, establish the kingdom of God. Christ is going to come. That's what we're looking to, the appearing of whom? Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is Christ called God? Yes, He is. He's our Savior, but He's also our great God. And that's what we're looking forward for, uh, for His coming. John chapter 20, verse 28. We all know about doubting Thomas when he saw uh, Christ. What did he say? My Lord and my God. He recognized Christ as God. And Christ did not say otherwise. He was God. Romans 9, 5. Romans 9, 5. Of whom are the fathers and from whom according to the flesh Christ came, who is overall the eternal blessed God. Christ is God. First Timothy 3, 16. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. We've already read that in John 1, verse 1, and other scriptures too. But here's just another one. God, not wisdom, or godly wisdom, or God's wisdom, God was manifested in the flesh. 1 John 5, verse 20. 1 John 5, verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is the true and we, who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This, now what is the uh, uh, antecedent of this? The Son, Jesus Christ, is the antecedent. This, the Son, Jesus Christ, is the true God. That's what John said. He is God. Hebrews 1.6. Hebrews 1.6. 
When he again brings the firstborn into the world, referring to God doing this, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. God tells the angels to worship Christ. He therefore must be God because Christ said to Satan back in Matthew chapter 4 verse 10, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. God and God alone can be worshipped. No other being, not even angels, can be worshipped. So if angels are worshipping Christ, it's because he is God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8 has a fantastic expression here for us. God is speaking. And he is speaking, he is addressing his son. So Hebrews 1 verse 8, to the son, he says... Your throne, and notice he does not say, your throne, O my son. God is speaking, addressing the son, and he says, your throne, O God. God is referring to his son as God. But if God is going to refer to his son as God, who am I to say Christ is not God? If God says his son is God, he is God. Notice also, therefore, this expression is interesting. Therefore, God, your God, has appointed you, and so forth and so on. Christ is God, but God, his Father, is his God. Or to put it this way, God's God is God. <laughs> or let me explain that a little bit more clearly. God the Father is the God of God the Son. God the Father is the God of God the Son. After all, Christ did say, did he not, the Father is greater than I? John 14, verse 28. God the Father is God, but the Son also is God. These are clearly two beings in Hebrews 1, verse 8. Both are God. Therefore, the premise I gave earlier about Christ not being eternal, that he was created, that he is not God, it's a false premise. But I mentioned earlier that there was a scripture that some used to try to show that there is only one being who is God. They will turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6 at verse 4. So we'll go back there and read that verse. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the eternal our God, the eternal is one. The word for one here in Hebrew is echad, E-C-H-A-D, E-C-H-A-D. It means one. But to some people, one means singular, unique, and can never have more than one part or one thing or one being. It can only be one, one, one. It could never, ever include any plurality. According to the Jesidius Hebrew and Chaldee lexicon to the Old Testament, akod means, quote, to unite, to join together, to be in unity. And other sources will say basically the same thing. But as you can expect, there are some who will not agree with that definition. I don't think it's accurate. 
So let's go to usage. How is the word echad used in the Bible? Can it mean a plurality of things? Can it mean a unity of parts? Can it be a compound unity? Can it be one made up of many others? Well, let's look and see. Genesis 2.24. Genesis 2.24. You know this scripture. Therefore, shall a, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They shall become one flesh. So here this one flesh, this one family unity is made up of they. But they is plural. Adam and Eve are two people. Yet they, plural, are one. It doesn't say they are two. It says they are one. So one can include, in this case, two beings, Adam and Eve. One, yes, it is one. But two people make up the one. Genesis 11 and verse 5. But the Eternal came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Eternal said, indeed, the people are one. They have one language. The people, of course, in this particular situation refers to hundreds, perhaps thousands of individuals. More than one person. So can one include more than one being? Well, obviously it can. It does here. One people. But there are a lot of people in this one people. A lot of people in this one people. Genesis chapter 29, verse 20. Genesis 29, 20. Referring to Jacob. Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Where is one? Where's one in this verse? Where's Akkad in this verse? This is interesting. How are the translators going to translate this verse? Notice the word days, D-A-Y-S. Days is plural. It doesn't say day, it says days, plural. But akkad precedes days. One precedes days. But you can't say one days grammatically. That's impossible. So the translators chose the word few. But few is plural. Obviously, what we have here is a unity of a period of time. To Jacob's mind, the short time that he was serving, or at least it seemed a short time, but seven times 365 is not exactly short. A lot of days. But in, in Jacob's mind, this is a short unit of time, a short period of time. And therefore, the word akkad, one, was used. But it includes seven times 365. You can do the math, days. It's not just one. Obviously, there are many words we use in our language that express collective unity. How about, for example, one family? But many individuals. One group. How about one church? How about one congregation? One city, one nation, one body. How about this one? One dozen. There are 12 in the one. One dozen. How many human races are there? Only one. 
There's only one humanity, but it is made up of others. I can easily understand how one family can have more than one being in that one family. I can understand how one church can have many church members. I can understand how one nation can have more than one citizen. I don't have a problem with that. I can also understand that there's only one human race, only one humanity, but billions of human beings. Likewise, I could understand that there's only one God, but at the present time there are two beings in that one God. There are many other examples I could give of a God. Perhaps you would want to look up some of those yourself. Some of those are very interesting. You know, in the New Testament, it does the same thing. Different word, of course, it's uh, the Greek and not Hebrew. John 10, verse 30. John 10, verse 30, Christ says, I and my Father, two beings, are one. They are one. God, the Father, His Son, Jesus Christ, they are one. So one can include more than one being. We understand that. Romans chapter 12, verse 5, we being many, referring to the church, we are one body. There's only one true church, but made up of thousands of human beings. We are one body in Christ and individually members, plural, one of another. But it's a collective unity of the individuals that make up the one body. Galatians 3.28 referring to there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, neither male nor female, but we're all one. We have that division. We have this group. We have that group. We have all kinds of groups, but we're all one in Christ. Ephesians 2.14, referring to the Jews and Gentiles, that God has made them together one and broken down the middle wall of partition that separates us. Then, of course, in John 17, verse, uh, I won't begin with verse 1, but in John 17, Christ in his prayer to God, I'll just interrupt in the context, Holy Father, in verse 11, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they, plural, may be one, as we, plural, are. God and Christ are one, and we also are one. So one can mean and does mean a plurality brought together in unity. Christ also said in verse 11, I'm sorry, uh, uh, verse, uh, verse 21, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. So we're also going to be one together in unity of purpose and belief with God and Christ as well. Verse 22, the glory which you gave me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. So we understand that. I don't think any of us have any problem understanding what Christ is saying. We and they, these are plural words. But the we and the they are one in the sense of being brought together in unity of belief and purpose and practice. We are brought together together with God and with Christ 
And we truly are and should be one. This comes back to the question I asked at the very beginning. Who is Jesus? Based on the scriptures that we have just read, I can accept no other conclusion than that Jesus Christ, our Savior, is eternal. He was not created. He has always existed. Based on the scriptures that we have just read, I can accept no other conclusion than that Jesus Christ, our Savior, is God, along with his Father, who of course also is God. As the Apostle John, when he was speaking about the Word, which he identified as Jesus, so, clear, so clearly and so succinctly stated, in a way, frankly, that, lead, that needs no explanation or interpretation, said this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That, my friends, is the end of the sermon.